you would please take your Bibles and follow along as I read our scripture for this morning. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 13 through 17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm glad that you're back for the second part of uh, this sermon, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week we we looked at the first part, the really the main part of chapter 2, and that was a, that was a big teaching section. Let's put it that way. Um, Paul did a lot of instructing in that section for the purpose of correcting some false doctrines that had made their way into that young church. That false doctrine that was tempting the Thessalonians was people were coming in and saying maybe even that Paul had said that the day of the Lord had already come and that they had missed the boat. Paul writes to correct that terrible doctrine and his argument you'll recall was that day could not have come yet because something that must precede that day has not happened yet and I think it's fair to say that you know when we talk about end times stuff when we when we look at charts and timelines and all that kind of stuff we find these to be very confusing I don't know if it's just me I don't think it is I think we find these timelines about the end times very confusing but Paul I hope you'll agree is very clear in this passage and this would be the second time that he's taught this to the Thessalonians, that the revelation of the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, must come before the revelation of Christ, the day of the Lord, his glorious return. Okay, that, that much, I think, is crystal clear. And so, uh, believers, you can rest assured don't be deceived, don't be shaken in mind or alarmed when certain people try to tell you that you've missed the boat. Jesus Christ will not return until the man of lawlessness is revealed. So that's the gist of the first 12 verses, okay? It's a heavy teaching section in which we learn a lot about the Antichrist and Satan and what is restraining them. And we learn something about their followers and how they're suffering delusion. And most gloriously, I think you'll agree, in, in these verses, we learned about the sovereignty of the Father. And we, we took much encouragement from the settled victory of the Son. He's going to destroy this joker with just a breath. So that's a lot of wonderful things to learn about, even if it, some of it is a little bit controversial. And I just want to reiterate at this point how thankful that I am um, that some of you are willing to kind of have your long-held views on 
end times challenged a little bit um, by by what the Bible says, and uh, that speaks a lot about you and your humility. So I, I'm grateful for all of the great conversations that I have been able to have with many of you over the last couple of weeks. Um, but back to the point that I was making about those first 12 verses being mainly a teaching, teaching section. Maybe you'll remember my awkwardness when we came to the end of last week's sermon when I didn't have much in the way of practical application for you. Okay, believe it or not, there's quite a bit of pressure on preachers to have sermons be really relevant and practical, full of application, full of stuff that you can put into practice when you go back to work on Monday or back to school. And people in the pews seem most interested to know what the various texts of scripture mean for them and mean to them. Um, people want to know what difference will this make in my life? And so a sermon that's, that's not geared in that direction is for many Christians, a huge letdown. Well, there's a, a couple of different ways that I, I might respond to that. Uh, I might respond curmudgeonly to that sort of an idea. And if I, if I went, if I did decide to go in that direction, I would probably point out how narcissistic of a mindset that is to approach scripture with. I might also mention just, you know, how learning and being reminded of the truth is direct application. Okay, that's something that to know more about God, you can't get more practical than to know more about Christ. That's, that's, but I'm not going to respond that way, okay? That, I, I might, I could, but I won't. I'm going to respond charitably to that idea that a, a sermon really needs to be practical. The charitable response says, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad that you want to know how to put these things into practice. I'm thrilled that you're not content to just be a mere hearer of the word. You want to do what it says. And that's super encouraging for a pastor to hear, right? That, that's how I'm going to respond to that one. And if that's how you're feeling today, then I'm delighted to show you the second part of this passage. Okay, this is the passage that Matthias read just a few minutes ago from verses 13 to 17. And hopefully you've got that open on your lap. Very happy to show you. All of this practical, practical stuff. Let me just point out right off the bat, the first two words of verse 15. In my, in my copy of God's word, it says, so then. And that's it, right? That's the indication that Paul is about to get really practical. Indeed, in what follows, we have two imperatives, okay? Two commands, two things for us to do in light of all of this stuff that we've learned so far. I'm very excited to show you that since I know you're interested in knowing what you need to do. But, but I'm also very interested to show you how these commands are, are packaged and how they're presented to us. Okay, you know, you get to an age where, where the packaging Something's packaging is almost more impressive than the product. 
You know, you get a you get a new device from Apple. Stacy was talking about our fondness for devices and stuff, but you get to an age where, you know, the the most exciting thing about getting a new iPhone or whatever is not so much the phone itself, but just the the box, like how slick, how it feels to the touch, and you know how slowly it opens because of the friction fit. You know, and how once inside you discover that everything's got its own little spot. You get to peel that plastic cover off and it's wonderful. I love it. Even before you get to the device itself, you know, the expectation has already built just by how the thing was packaged and presented to you. So too, when it comes to the commands of scripture. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you'll very rarely find in the New Testament just kind of bare commands. You know, do this, do, don't do that, do the other thing. Very rare to, to come across something like that. And we think that that's all that we need. You know, like we, say, we even say things like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. We, we have in our minds kind of like a checklist of things that we want to get done when it comes to the Christian life. But, but actually, that never is enough. We think it is, but it never is. It certainly isn't enough for enduring faithfulness. It's not enough for obedience over the long haul. You know, if we had just bare commands, we might do okay with them for an hour or a day or whatever. But, but to, to continue in faithfulness and obedience over the course of a Christian life, we need more than that. And so what we find very helpfully are commands that come to us in very beautiful and helpful packaging. Now, best I can tell, it was a Dutch theologian of the last century, a man by the name of Herman Ritterbaugh, that, that really helped um, us think about this framework that I'm talking about, this packaging. And Ritterbaugh wrote this. Stick with me here. I don't want to lose you. The imperative rests on the indicative. The imperative rests on the indicative, and this order is not reversible. Okay, what does he mean by that? We have, to make sense of that, you've got to think back to high school English class. All right? The, uh, you know, the moods, grammatical moods of, of words. You know, there's um, one of the moods is the imperative, and that expresses a command. That expresses something that must be done. So it is imperative that you, that word imperative means you must do this. These are commands. Indicative, the root word is indicate. This just kind of expresses factual statements, telling you, for example, what has already been done. So Ritterbaugh, this theologian, is pointing out that Paul's imperatives, his commands, always rest on indicatives. Indicatives like who God is and who we are in Christ and what God has done for us in the gospel. You know, those sorts of indicative statements, that's the bedrock, that's the foundation for the commands that we receive. Okay, in other words, our duties as Christians are never just kind of isolated on their own on a list of to-do. 
Rather, they're always anchored to gospel realities. So not only are we told what to do, at the same time, we understand why we ought to do these things and how it will be possible for us to do these things. Do you understand? So far, I I realize I'm talking abstractly. I'm going to get to an actual example here in a second. But are are we good so far? The imperatives of Scripture rest on the indicatives. So in our passage today, Paul is going to follow that same formula, but he's going to kick it up a notch. Okay, so what we have in verses 13 to 17 is something that we could call a command sandwich. A command sandwich. I love a good sandwich. Okay, I love it when my wife uh, cooks a chicken And then for the next few days, I get to have sandwiches from the leftovers. You know, that, it, in my humble opinion, it doesn't get much better than, you know, chunks of chicken that are salted and peppered laid between two mayonnaise pieces of bread. White bread, let's be very clear. That is, that's a sandwich to me. I love that. And actually, the bread part, I'm not just being a goofball. That's important because in this analogy, the bread is the best part. The bread is the best part. Top and bottom, they represent the indicatives that that are sandwiching the imperatives. It's important that you get that analogy. The, The top and bottom bread slices are the indicatives that are sandwiching the commands in the middle okay so i want you to get that because this is how we're going to approach this passage this is how we're going to eat this passage bread chicken bread okay and that's our bcb that's our outline the b the c the b if you're following along in a bulletin but it doesn't stand for that we're going to see the basis the commands, and the benediction. The basis, the commands, the benediction, BCB. I realize that's convoluted. Please forgive me. That's the best I can do. This is a command sandwich, and I hope that we can feast on it here in the time that we have remaining. Let's look at the basis. This brings us to verses 13 and 14, and And before we get there, just look again how verse 15 starts. Verse 15 is the chicken. That's where the meat is. This is where we're going to find our marching orders. And we're going to look at this section, obviously, under the next section. But in the meantime, just notice again how it begins. It says, so then. You might have a version that says, therefore. And either way, doesn't matter how that's interpreted, you know, they mean the same thing. Either way, they're, they're telling us we're meant to understand that what Paul is about to say flows naturally and logically. It flows necessarily from what comes before, from this bread that's on top. And so we're going to look now at this stuff that comes before. But I think, you know, I just thought it'd be helpful for you to see that relationship first. Verses 13 and 14 form the basis of the commands that will come to us in verse 15. 
the imperatives of verse 15 are going to be on the basis of the indicatives of verse 13 and 14. Okay, so let's look at verses 13 and 14. There's a lot of indicatives that Paul packs into these verses. There's truths about the Trinity, truths about us, what has happened to us, how it happened to us, and what will be true of us in the future. And all of this is crucial for us to know if we ever hope to live in the light of it. This is what's going to power and fuel our obedience. And there's so much good stuff here that I hardly even know where to begin. But I suppose the best place to start is the start. And at the start, we come across that little word, but. And that's a word of contrast. And so it brings us back to where we finished last week. And if you'll recall, if you were here, you'll recall that we left off on kind of a somber note. You know, we, we left off with a mention of a multitude of people who are part of the rebellion. These are, these are a, a, a mass congregation of people that are associated with the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. And these are people, you understand. These are regular people, people like your family members, your co-workers, your neighbors, your classmates. You know, friends who are perishing, the Bible says. Perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's the reason that Paul gives in the passage. And, and now I want you to notice another dynamic that was at play there in verse 11. Yes, they refuse to love the truth and believe the truth. But God is also at the same time sending these people a strong delusion so that they believe the lie. And that belief in what is false leads to their condemnation. I don't know if you have a category for, for that in your mind, in your theology, but that is what the Bible teaches right in front of you. This verse is describing something like the sovereignty of God in condemnation. This is a God who is actively confirming unbelievers in their own preference for lies and in their own pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so that, that's a somber, that's a tricky thing to think about. But at the end of the day, it's a very sobering thing to think about that people are going to be condemned because they hated the truth and loved the lie, that they took pleasure in unrighteousness. But, but, and, and so now we come, this is the hinge that verse 13 swings on. But, praise the Lord, this is not true of the saints in Thessalonica or in Dansville. We trust. What, what is true of us? What is, in contrast to th those people, what is true of us? First of all, notice that we are beloved by the Lord. Man, you could meditate on that indicative for days and never come even close to plumbing the depths of it. You are loved by the Lord, saints. And some of you have a hard time even hearing that. 
you, you view yourself as so unlovely to, that it's jarring when you read that you actually are loved by the Lord. It's true. The Lord Jesus Christ has loved you with an everlasting love. And, and if you ever doubt, if you're ever tempted to doubt that he loves you, here's my advice. Just look at the cross and, and see him there, arms outstretched to save you, bearing in his body on that tree all of your sins, standing in your place, condemned. And we sing things like that. We, we sing, what wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear that awful curse for my soul? That's love. That, you don't get any lovelier than that. Friends, you are loved by the Lord. Of course, you know that the Lord has risen and he's ascended. And he's going to come again soon. And, and his return is the subject matter of this larger passage. And the nearest reference to the Lord, if you kind of, so we're here in verse 13 and we want to track up who's, who's he talking about the Lord and what has he been talking about the Lord. The closest reference is verse 8, which is an, announces that basically as soon as the Antichrist is revealed, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be revealed and he will destroy him instantly with just the breath of his mouth and he'll bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so you think, man, what glory, what, what power. That's the Lord that we're talking about. And now pair that up with you are loved by that Lord. You pair that up. And you understand that this same victorious Lord is for you. You are his beloved. And you can, you can let that incredible indicative just fill you with all kinds of confidence. Well, you might ask, how did the Thessalonians, or how did we, for that matter, arrive at this position of being beloved of the Lord? And look at the middle of verse 13. Seriously, I want you to look at the middle of verse 13 because I don't want you to think that I'm making anything up. I don't want you to think that I'm forcing my own theology into the text. How did the Thessalonians arrive here? How did we arrive here? It's because God chose you to be saved. Read it in the text. God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Paul's bringing us all the way back into eternity past, and he's giving us a glimpse into God's sovereign purposes in election. There, there's a controversial word, but do you, this isn't controversial for Paul, and he's bringing this up not so that we would get in a fight, but that we would get some major encouragement from this, you understand that the, the ultimate explanation for why we find ourselves in the grace in which we now stand has everything to do with God's gracious choice of us, even before we were born, before we had the ability to do anything good or bad. God has determined to set his love and affection on us. And so we could ask, well, how does this play out in real time? Well, in the second half of verse 13 and on into verse 14, 
Paul mentions some of the means that lead to the realization of the salvation that God has sovereignly destined us for. Okay, some of the means. Identify those. Okay, and one of those means is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel, which Paul and his associates were faithful to do when they first went to Thessalonica. And what happened next was that these people believed that truth that they preached and so were saved. And they were a sort of first fruits of all the multitude of Gentiles who would come to faith after that. They were, they were some of the first people in this larger region of Macedonia that would eventually be saved in similar fashion. But wait a second, because I've missed one of the means. Okay, preaching of, of the gospel, they, they hear, they believe, okay, and they're saved. But I've missed one of the, the means. The end of verse 13 says that their salvation is through the sanctification of the Spirit. And I think the word sanctification here, I think, is best understood simply as being set apart. Okay, set apart, consecrated by the Holy Spirit. So let's ask ourselves this question of the text. Where does the Holy Spirit fit into the process? Hearing the gospel that's preached by some evangelist, believing the gospel we hear and, and understand and believe. And I think we, like most Christians, would think that the spirit comes next. You know, like I believe and then, then I receive the Holy Spirit and he begins to work in my heart from that point forward. But look at the order in the verse. Sanctification of the spirit is before belief in the truth. And that, when you think about it, that's what makes sense, doesn't it? Because without the Spirit, we would be stuck in our natural repulsion to the truth. We would be stuck in our natural love of the lie and everything that is false. But it's the Spirit's wonderful work to, to change our heart and to change our affections such that we now love the truth. Surprise, surprise, we're... And maybe you can testify to this in your own experience. You're almost like shocked by what's happened in you such that you have affection for Jesus Christ when once you were running away from him. We, we begin to love the truth rather than the lie such that when we hear the, the truth proclaimed in the gospel, that call is irresistible to us and effectual. And we believe it. And we're saved. Okay, so not notice what we've seen so far. The love of the Lord, the sovereign choice of the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit. In other words, every member of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, is for us. In eternity past, in the recent past, in the present and in the future, God, in his fullness, God, the Holy Trinity, is for you. 
Look at how verse 14 ends. It ends with the purpose for our election and our salvation. And this brings us all the way into the future. Salvation is so that, and that indicates purpose, so that you might obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's astounding, too. At this point, we, we know a fair amount about the glory of Christ. We, we know, for example, that because of his humility and because of his obedience, he's been given a name that's higher than any other name, a name the sound of which every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's glory coming for Christ. And more specifically, we, we've learned from these Thessalonian letters, we know that Christ is going to return in glory at the sound of a, trumple, a trumpet, at the shout of the archangel, accompanied by myriad of angels and flames of fire. And as we've just seen, so great will be his glory that he'll simply just speak a word and he's going to destroy all of his enemies. The glory is going to be Christ's forever. And then we read that God's goal for our salvation is that we would be partakers in Christ's glory. That we would somehow share in it that somehow Christ is going to be glorified in us even as we will be glorified in him. And I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind. Who, who is worthy of these things? Christ alone is worthy. Who, who am I? It's almost too wonderful to think of. That the, the reason that God saved me is so that I might share in the glory that is due his son. Well, how do we respond to those things? Well, for starters, you can totally see why Paul kicks off this whole thing by saying, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. So thanksgiving, that's exactly what we should be about. Thanksgiving to God. This is all down to his sovereign work. But another response is just as appropriate. And this brings us to our second point, our C, the meat of the matter, the chicken, and that is the commands, the commands, verse 15. So we come again to those two words that open, verse 15, so then, except this time, I hope you can feel the force of that. I hope you can now understand how this is working. If we've adequately understood and appreciated all of those indicatives in, in the first two verses, then it should lead us almost automatically, not just to worship and thanksgiving, but it should lead us to work. We should be so blown away by the mercies of God that we're ready almost instinctively to offer our whole selves as living sacrifices. We're ready to get down to it now. See, these glorious indicatives, they totally prep you to, to roll up your sleeves. They, they make you want to say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Name it. I'll do it. 
And here's what we're to do. Here's what the Lord asks us to do in response to all of these wonderful things. You ready? Stand firm. Stand firm. So then, brothers, stand firm. You know, having, having been brought to this point by the, by the love and the activity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of these kind of acting in concert together, having been destined for glory, it's imperative that we would stand firm. And that, what that means, you know what it means. I don't even have to explain it. It means to, it means to have your feet planted, firmly fixed, not moving, not drifting to the right or to the left. You know, um, was it a couple of weeks ago? Time's flying on me, but a number of us were in Ocean City, New Jersey at a Bible conference. And in addition to the great teaching that we got every morning and evening, we got to spend the entire afternoons on the beach. And uh, some of us spend most of that time in the water, in the ocean. And the, it was great, but the only problem was that the riptides were very, very strong when we were there, especially on the Monday, the first day that I was there. So you'd be out playing in the water. You'd be riding the, the waves on your boogie board or, you know, body surfing or whatever. And almost without perceiving it, the current would pull you down the shore and certainly not feeling it kind of pulling you out as well. And eventually you'd notice it when you, when you did look up and look at the beach, you'd recognize that you're actually now way down the beach compared to where you entered. All of your friends are sitting now way over there when you just kind of walked out straight in front of them. And so you get out of the water and you walk back to the starting point. And now that you've noticed it, you can really feel it. Once you wade out past a certain point, it's almost impossible to keep your feet planted. You know, that current is strong enough to push you off your feet and carry you eventually out to sea or into a large formation of sharp rocks, which was the case at the spot that we were at. And actually, they told us that just a few days before we were there, a 56-year-old man drowned because of the currents right in that spot that we were. And I bring all that up to say that if you're a Christian, you have to understand that there's a strong current that's always threatening to, to get you off your feet and to carry you into danger and ultimately into destruction. For the Thessalonians, this took the, the form of persecution and oppression. It took the form of false teaching, especially about the return of Christ. And Paul has just been teaching us that the Antichrist is going to deceive many and he's going to lead them into rebellion and condemnation. And behind him stands Satan himself, the father of lies, who you know is always prowling around, seeking whom he may devour. But Peter says, resist him. And how do you resist him? Standing firm in your faith. This is the command that Paul now gives us. Stand firm. There's a second command in verse 15. Although I don't want you to think about it as totally separate and distinct. Okay, you know, the chicken in my sandwich is of two types. It's, there's dark meat in there. There's white meat in there. 
but it's all chicken. In the same way, this second command is very much related to the first. And it functions as one of the primary means by which we stand first, uh, firm and fast. Paul says this, and hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us. Stand firm and hold fast. And the, the idea, I think, is stand firm by holding fast to the traditions that were taught by us. To hold fast means to, to cling on to for dear life. It means to turn your, your knuckles white by the tightness of your grip. What are the Thessalonians to hold on to? The apostolic tradition. Okay, the things that Paul and Silas and Timothy taught them when they were th with them face to face. They had the authority as apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ to, to speak truth to them. So they are to hold on to those things. But also, well, first of all, you know, this begins with the gospel. This is what Paul and Timothy and Silas shared with them is this gospel. That's the truth that was delivered to them that they first believed. They found themselves loving it and believing it. And that led to their salvation. But since that time, there's been more truth that the apostles have shared with them, either by face-to-face -face or by a letter. And this would include all sorts of truth about the return of Christ and about the re revelation of the Antichrist. Paul is commanding them to hold fast onto these kinds of truths because they've seen for themselves the very real and present danger of drift. When, when they were tempted to not hold on to those traditions and to go after other teachings, there's a real and present danger of drifting away, getting your feet out from under you and into, if it was possible, destruction. Now, of course, we live in a slightly different time one in which the apostles have all uh, gone on into glory. But in the goodness of God, we have this apostolic gospel and we have their teaching in a book. We have a Bible. We have God's word. And, and how the commands in verse 15 kind of get cashed out for us is that we are called to be faithful and to stand firm and to hold fast to scripture. This is, this is a call to conservatism. Okay? This is, that's what these words mean. Stand firm, hold fast, hold, keep. Those are, that's the language of conservatism. We, we need to maintain and cons conserve all of this truth. So we are called to be conservatives. But let's be clear I want to be very clear on this point. Our calling, these commands, relate to biblical conservatism, not political conservatism. And I make that distinction. Obviously, there's all kinds of areas of overlap there. But I, I just want to take the opportunity to issue this warning as another election season heats up. Are we ever out of an election season? I don't think so. It's always... It's always um, heating up, and it's always 
white hot. And I just want to say, because I love you, that if what is animating you is a particular political party or certain players, then you are swimming in the current. You're not standing. Believe me, I, I'm, I'm telling you this because I've seen many Christians get sucked into the undertow of conservative politics, and it is deadly. It's dangerous. It becomes, for, for, for these people, it becomes their all-consuming passion. And you can tell that because it's what they talk about constantly. It's what they're always defaulting to. And friends, that is drift. I'm as conservative politically as the next guy. In fact, I would put myself against anyone in those respects. But it is drift, I tell you. And it will destroy you. Our passion, our calling is to be biblical conservatives, to stand firm, to hold fast to the truth that's revealed in scripture. And my prayer is that it would be plain to all who see us and hear us and read our Twitter feed and our Facebook posts that we are animated by the gospel of Christ alone and the word of God alone. Brothers and sisters, let us stand firm on those things. Let us hold fast to that. And that brings us to our last point, which I'll just explain really quickly and that is how do you end that you know how there's our commands how do you how do you end that you say there you go stand firm hold fast that's what you need to do good luck with that no you know you know what's really good you know what we need is a, a bottom slice of bread all right we need some more glorious indicatives to kind of hold this whole thing together and this time the indicatives are not going to be what God has done but what Paul is confident that the Lord God is going to do for us and this takes the form of a benediction uh, that word if you break it up means bene which means good diction word this is a good word this is a uh, a word of blessing that's spoken over these believers. It's a good word about what God has done and has determined to do. Can you, can you see that there? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, there's that love again. That That's past tense too, but it has incredible implications for the present and the future, and speaking of the future, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. This is what, this is what God is going to do for us eternally, is give us comfort and rest. And our hope is based on all that he is providing for us by his grace in the future. And, and that, that reality of comfort and rest that is true of the future can, can be true of us and control us in the present. We can enjoy this comfort and this hope in the present based on our future inheritance. And here's 
here's what Paul speaks and prays that God, who's done all of this, would comfort our hearts and that he would establish our hearts. Because I don't know about you, but that's my problem. My, my heart, the center of the core of who I am is, is restless and it's perturbed when I do watch the news, when I, when I interact with, with someone at, at Burger King, right? My heart is just restless and I, I'm anxious and I, I'm filled with all sorts of hatred and fear and worry and I desperately need my heart to be settled because if my heart is settled, my feet are going to be planted. And Paul is saying that this is something that the Lord God is so pleased to do, to comfort my heart and to establish it. In what? In every good work and word. Ah, Paul, you are sneaky. You've snuck in a couple more imperatives. You've told me a couple more things that I need to be about in this world. I need to, I need to be spending myself in both my work and my word. And both of those need to be characterized by goodness. I need to be speaking this truth that we've been talking about so that others might hear and believe and be saved. I need to be combating the errors that come with the truth of God's word. So my, my lips have to be engaged, but also my hands and my feet have to be engaged. Because if I'm capt- captured by the truth and, I am, and, and I'm glorying in all of these things that are true of me by the grace of God, I am going to be a person who's poured out in service for the Lord and for people. May the Lord establish my heart and and your heart in every good work and word. Friends, that's our task. And thankfully, thankfully, we can do that because of everything that's true about the the God that has called us to do these things. Amen? Amen.